0: Welcome to the Generation Hustle podcast, a show that explores the world of business, entrepreneurship, and culture, all centered around the millennial. I'm your co-host, Sherison, alongside my good friend, Amin. And today, we talk with Andre Garber, partner at Faskin, a leading international law firm with more than 700 lawyers and 10 offices across four continents. And today, we're going to be talking about startups. What goes into creating a startup? The tech boom brought on a world of new startups with entrepreneurs brimming with ideas, angling to share their vision with the world. One idea is all it takes to spark the next billion dollar entity. However, what's lost in the noise is the regulatory environment and strategic plays that occur behind the scenes that lead to the success. Enter Andre Garber. In addition to being a partner at Faskin, Andre is also the co-chair of the firm's startup and emerging companies services group. In this role, he advises companies throughout their entire life cycle, from formation to exit. As a recognized leader in Ontario's tech ecosystem, Andre is a trusted and tireless advocate for all of his clients. So we talk to Andre about what it takes to create and grow a successful startup. He walks us through the business law matters that every entrepreneur should be aware of, such as fundraising and global expansion, as well as short and long-term strategic decisions. If you're looking to enter or create a startup of your own, you don't want to miss this episode. We also want to give a special shout out to today's sponsor,
1: Podcorn. So let me ask you this, you're a growing brand looking to partner with other companies to help scale your business? Or you're like us, a podcast looking at brands to partner with? Like many business founders, you find it extremely difficult to find these opportunities. Well, that was their case originally for the Generation Hustle podcast before we started using Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing sponsorship opportunities such as post-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all size can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly with no exclusivities. This opens up the opportunity for you as a business or a podcast to scale much faster. So what are you waiting for? Check out podcorn.com to start growing.
2: So we just wanted to get started off uh, with kind of a little bit of your history and your fascination with the tech space, obviously being a lawyer in the tech space. um, We just wanted to understand where that kind of started from and and what brought you to this.
3: Yeah, and thanks for having me on. It's a a pleasure to be here. Um, Yeah, I mean, I've always been kind of toying around with technology, you know, since I was younger. Never went to engineering, you know, school or you know, got an engineering degree. But um, I did my uh, undergrad in radio and television at, uh, at Ryerson, and uh, even before that, you know, I used to DJ and kind of throw parties in high school. And you know, I built a little amateur recording studio in my parents' basement. And, I love uh, it. Just like yeah, like wiring recording studios and um, you know, kind of working on sound and software editing, a bit of video editing too. So like always been just kind of this user of software and, you know, not just like, you know, a Microsoft word user of software, but, um, you know, actually creating, you know, media through software and stuff. So it was awesome. I remember going to, um, I remember going to New York by myself for a few days when I was in high school to like, go like learn pro tools, which was this, um, audio recording software. Um, and, uh, in, you know, in, I don't know, it was a grade 11 or something. It was like the best three days of my life. And I was like, basically just lived in that studio and I was just like soaking up as much as I could. For sure. Um, so, so I think it was just, you know, mainly from the audiophile side of me to kind of get fascinated with tech.
2: For sure. For sure. Yeah. And obviously now uh, you're a partner at Faskin in your current role. Um, so we love to see that progression and how you kind of brought your passion together with, with your career. And one of the stories that I like a lot is, uh, you created a startup program at a law firm before this role uh, at a prior role. Could you, could you talk about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, you're, you're, you're giving me a look, so I wasn't sure if you didn't <laughs> want to talk about it. So <laughs> No, no, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm
3: happy to, uh, I'm happy to, to, to open my life up to, to you guys. So, uh, but yeah, no, um, you know, I, I just finished, um, I, I was just finishing articling, um, at my prior firm and, um, needed to sort of create the next opportunity for myself, I actually wanted to pitch a job to Mars. I was like thinking, well, this was, you know, this was around 2013. And I was thinking, well, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that are probably consuming these legal services that are so far off from being able to, you know, pay for these rates and, um, you know, actually have access to the right people. So I thought, well, why, why not, you know, pitch something to Mars where you can, you know, create some sort of you know, repository of, of information or documents that could help people, you know, have access to things you, you may be, you know, you may be two e-commerce companies that are competing with each other, but if you're like, okay, shit, I'm just going to save like 50% on my legal bill for this. Like, okay, fine. I'll talk to this competitor when I'm starting out. and like, we could, you know, draw from the same knowledge bank or something, but the firm sort of heard about it and said, well, why don't you pitch that to us? And, uh, I was, like I said, I was in Ottawa at the time and I'm from Toronto. So I went back to Toronto to pitch this. I put a pitch deck together. Um, I like grabbed some email quote from someone who said (laughs) something nice about me. And I was like, see, this guy said it. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, just basically, you know, tried to get myself a job. And then, you know, that was, that was in, you know, late 2013. And I guess it just kind of mushroomed from there. And, you know, within one year, of my first year of being a lawyer, you know, I had 81 unique timekeepers at that firm, touch the files that I was bringing in and working on, you know, including lawyers, paralegals, students, et cetera. Um, And it just seemed to be, you know, picking up really well. So I did that for about five years and now uh, happy to get a spot on the roster at Fasted.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and that's amazing. Like what was the initial feedback? Did they, did they kind of have the same vision that this was going to be as successful as, as you pitched it or?
3: I think it was a, I think it was kind of a wait and see, you know I mean? Right. Law firms are pretty traditional in terms of, you know, their business models. And, um, and I think that, you know, sometimes with law firms, um, you know, innovation efforts that you see can maybe be a little bit more of a marketing effort than a, a subs, you know, a substance filled effort internally. Right. And so I think it was a wait and see, but, I think the firm, you know, quickly saw the success and just wanted to to support it further. So I'm I'm very grateful for for the opportunity I had at that firm for sure.
2: For sure, yeah, it it, it, it took off well, and I feel like that's such a it's such a niche market that a lot of people would have otherwise ignored, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Sweet. Yeah and so you're now you're like a now you're a partner at Faskin right which is an industry leader within the tech space when it comes to innovation and startup advising um so can you kind of talk a bit more about your approach in terms of what Faskin brings to the table um, and then how you guys help companies i know there's a various amount of ways but if i was to generalize a startup comes up to you what what kind of things do they ask and how, how what's the approach you guys take
3: yeah, I mean, well, Faskin is, is the largest team in the country doing this work. There's about 40 of us full time from coast to coast. And I guess, you know, technically the, the East Coast stops in Quebec City, uh, but, you know, coast to coast-ish. Um, and, you know, the, the common thread with us is that we really take the time to sit with founders. And we don't work with every single founder that comes through our door or, you know, founding team or company. But we really do take that time to, you know, scope things out, listen to founders, hear what they're up to, speak their language. You know, we hope that you know they speak our language too, and we educate them through the process. And you know, when founders grow up and raise rounds of financing, you hope that there's that nice two-way feedback where you know you can almost professionalize their business over time. Um, you know, bef- you know before there's a CFO before you know, before there's any of that kind of, you know, professionalization of the business, you you try to be there to help them kind of think about things two steps ahead or three steps ahead or whatnot. Um, and, you know, that's not, you can't bill for, for every single minute of your day, but you have to be available so you can actually help them think through problems or, you know, help them foresee problems before they happen.
1: Right. And what, what are, com- so like comes, uh, when it comes to any legal advice, what are kind of like common mistakes that startups make uh, before coming to you and then maybe you have to fix them? Or uh, what kind of generalized areas are they weak in?
3: I mean, I think that there's there's there can be a general theme around, you know, how are you managing your equity with your, you know, employees or your advisors or, you know, other directors you're bringing on board or contractors, you, you know, even from the early stage. I mean, you, you can even set up a stock option plan for companies. And then, you know, but you actually have to administer it. And you have to think about how do you weave that into your your hiring process, and you know what are you pricing your stock options at? And while that's not a purely legal thing, you know, law firms aren't typically um, providing valuation services. You know, right. it's, it's things that you know startups need to be thinking about. Um, you know, I mean, there's a common thread of like you know make sure that the company owns the IP, but if right. you can't, if you if you're a founder and you can't find like an employment agreement online um, uh, that is specific to the jurisdiction you're in. Okay. don't, don't like pull a Delaware law employment agreement for Ontario. That's just not, that's just not right. For sure. Uh, but you know, if you can kind of get yourself the way there and make sure that IP gets assigned in, you know, it's usually not an issue that we see because, you know, founders are generally pretty attuned to that. And I think if you're, if you're missing that, I think you probably have bigger systemic issues. Uh, it's like a symptom <laughs> of an illness, if you will.
1: Yeah. And, uh, so you, you mentioned a very important topic right there. It's IP, right? With obviously the tech world booming now, and a lot of companies not owning physical assets, but, uh, intellectual property. Um, what kind of shift have you seen in terms of your role and, uh, how you kind of approach it as a team? Cause, uh, I know in the accounting industry, we've been taught now to really focus in on, how do we protect our IP as well from the accounting perspective and how do we evaluate that and all that. But from a legal perspective, what, what's the definition around what IP is and what, what, what are some problems you see that startups kind of continually get in when it comes to IP? I know there's probably a lot of things going on in the background, but, uh, generalize.
3: Yeah. I mean, generalizing it's, it's really, you know, IP is, is around, you know, your intangible and intellectual property, right? So I think that the key to starting to understand how you should go about protecting your IP is actually speaking to specialists who don't just force you down the path of saying, oh, that's really cool. We should try and patent something. It may be the case that you know you shouldn't be patenting something. Like you should be, you know, so I think when you're looking at an IP strategy, you kind of have to say, well, there's, you know, there's kind of two main buckets of you know, hard IP, which is patents and then the softer IP, you know, copyright trademarks. I mean, just that, you know, just the show alone, this podcast is going to be copyrighted because now what you're doing is you're taking an idea and you're putting it into a fixed form, right. That recording you you automatically create copyright. You don't have to register that, but, and this isn't legal advice by the (laughs) way, but you know, you don't have to register it, but you know, it is, it is automatically, you know, copyright creation, right. But when you start thinking about patents well you have to think about you know there's a cost to protecting your ip from a hard ip perspective and filing patents and there's a strategy around it and you know i think that the good ip specialists that i've seen i'm not an ip guy but the good ip specialists that i've seen are the people that take a step back with these companies and start thinking about their ip strategy Mm -hmm. as a whole and start to say well, what are your competitors doing in the space and you know what kind of alerts do you have on them and are, what kind of patents are they filing in the space and what are you seeing and now not every patent is you know publicly available throughout the you know the whole registration process right, right. you can file certain you know applications in the states for example, where you know your your, uh, your patent stays confidential while you're you know you can make some amendments to the claim you know for the first year and so you, you don't always you can't always see what your competitors are doing at every step of the way they're filing their own patents but you know it's important to actually think through from a business perspective um like what are you going to do about protecting your your ip and you know i wouldn't just go in that one-dimensional well if you have an invention you should patent it because inventions get patented that's just not the case all the right time. right
2: Fair, fair, fair. And uh, hopefully we're not going to get an invoice for billables after this conversation. But um, <laughs> I'm not, not going to make any promises on that. <laughs> Spoken like a lawyer, but yeah. So, I mean, you've dealt with a lot of founders, obviously in your role, um, and, and, and kind of working with them in, in these companies. So what, what area along the life cycle do you find that they require the most assistance? Like whether it's formation or exit, like where do you find that you're providing the most assistance to these founders? Yeah,
3: I mean, you know, documents get changed, agreements get changed multiple times between information and the exit. The exit is it's a hugely important part, but there's also, there's also steps along the way that are, you know, just as important, if not more important from, you know, an economics and control perspective that may actually dictate what you get on that exit event. So, you know, the, those fundraising events that happen along the way can be extremely important. Um, they can happen really quickly, but it's really important that you're you're getting the issues and you understand the issues, you know, quickly and while that fundraising event is happening or leading up to it. I mean, there are things that I do where, you know, I'll send I'll send due diligence request lists to clients, you know, before financing rounds happen and, you know, sometimes I'll walk them through it or, you know, or I won't, but you know, I'll send them the list and say, "Look, this is what your investors are going to send you. Just look at it and start getting your getting your house in order." You know, right. start doing that, and you know, so that you're not wasting people's time. Uh, you know, as you go through the process, and they find that pretty helpful because you know, then the cleanup around financings and you know the things that they're thinking about. You know, okay, yeah, well, there, were, there was that, there was that missing IP assignment, or you know, we do need to you know grant a couple options before this happens, um, or whatever the case may be. You you know, they'll they'll go through that and. Uh, get their you know their customer contracts in order, et cetera. Um, and then there's like other pieces that, you know, may maybe sort of less transformational transactions or that the company kind of deals. But there's the ongoing commercial contracting, you know, or like the relationship management through contracts. Like, you know, what are your customers signing? And like are you putting together paper that is creating friction or not? I mean, there's some there's some industries where I just you hate to see this, but the, com- you know, the, the contracting process with some big corpse, it just takes a long time and right. companies need to understand that. And it's better that they just understand it up front so that, you know, for example, if they're raising funds and they're raising and they're saying, okay, well, you know, we're raising for an 18 month runway, but our sales cycle is 18 to 24 months yeah. without necessarily budgeting for contingency as well. I mean, you're kind of fucked at that point. Yes. So you have yeah. to think about things realistically with, you know, how you're, how you're raising. So th- they do fit together and that's why I'm kind of bringing up both at the same time.
2: For sure. So, so a lot of level setting that you'd say then, um, especially with working with founders, letting them know like expectations and what they should, what, what they're going to walk into.
3: Yeah. For I mean, for sure. Like you're not, you're not always giving people the news that they like, you know, love Want. to hear, yeah. but you know, yeah. that's not, yeah. that's not your job, right? To kind of. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't even call it a job because, you know, right. I love what I do. So it's not really a job, but, you know, I would say, you know, this is, uh, you, you have to be as realistic exactly. as you can be for sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so that brings us actually to a perfect segue when we talk about fundraising and obviously providing feedback. Uh, so companies go out through like seed round, series a series B and each, each round has its own unique kind of factors. Um, so kind of describe me some, uh, critical factors that you need to consider before, uh, raising any money from a legal or deal perspective for any founder at any stage.
3: Like you're saying in terms of, you know, what, yeah, like what the due is.
1: diligence or like what it is and stuff like that.
3: Yeah. Like, well, just to kind of add on some of the things we were chatting about before, um, your, your, your cap table with, you know, which is really just that, you know, snapshot of the ownership of the company at any given time, mapping out, you know, people's rights to the shares or, you know, the rights to the percentages, you know, of equity in the company. Right. Um, Right. Your your cap table is going to get, you know, larger and larger as you go along, you know, and and, um, what, what you'll see in multiple rounds of financings is that, you know, some of the things that you agree to early on can, can stick around kind of like a plaque that can sometimes be, irreversible, um, you know, and it just kind of builds up. So, you know, when you talk about things like um, a liquidation preference, which yeah. is really, you know, the, the best way to think of a liquidation preference is it's an economic protection, uh, which I mean, can be used for control, but it's an economic protection that protects the investor's capital in the event of a kind of a suboptimal sale scenario. Um, and there's, there's different you know there's many permutations of a liquidation preference right but when you start out you know your first few rounds you know you want to try and get everybody all the investors even if it's a seed round and then an a round and a b round you want to try your best to get all of those investors on the same equal footing of liquidation preference so that you know you're not sort of uh stacking uh, if right. you will right. and that can that can be a bit more punitive um you know to the to the common holders where the founders are sitting
1: Right. right. And so uh, can, can you kind of deep dive into liquidation preference? I, I know a lot of startup founders get surprised by this term uh, after they see a few rounds of raising money um, and some things happen and they, they notice that they're left with nothing. Um, yeah. So can you give an example of this and why they should be, is this something that they should put some emphasis on and know about?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, there's really two main concepts to understanding the liquidation preference. The first one is the multiple, right? So investor puts in $5 million. If it's a one X liquidation preference, then that multiple is, you know, as long as they get their 5 million bucks out, then, you know, they're happy. Well, they're not necessarily happy. I I doubt they'd be happy at all, but, uh,
2: satisfied.
3: that, you know, in the event, let's say the company was sold for $4 million, they would get four in the event that, that, and the commons wouldn't get anything in the the event that the company was sold for, you know, for, for six, they get five and then the rest would be split amongst the commons. So, you know, but if it's a 2X liquidation preference, then, you know, then that's 2X the capital in, in, in effect. Um, So, you know, unless they get 10 million out, then they're not going to participate with the commons in, in, you know, on a, equal percentage basis or on a pro rata basis but the next thing is the participation right which is you know you don't often see it um, you know uh, you know, you definitely don't you don't you don't see it uh, often in series a financings uh, you may see it later on a little more frequently but the the participation right is essentially the right for investors to get their capital out or the equivalent of their capital out and then assume that they're converting into commons and they basically participate with the commons after they get their capital out. So com- you know, investors, let's just say for the sake of and math, the investors put in $10 million, the company sold for a hundred million dollars and they own, you know, 10% they're going to get, they're going to get their 10 million out and then they're going to get 10% of 90 million, which is remaining. Mm, okay. So, that's kind of the way that the participation rate works. If it's one X non participating in that example, they're just going to get their They're, they're going to have a choice of either getting their 10 million or whatever, you know, the 10% on conversion equates to whichever one is greater.
1: Okay. Oh, okay. I think okay. that that's very important. And those examples, uh, I mean, I just learned about participating, right? So right there. So, uh, I mean, it's huge. I mean, it, it makes a huge impact. I know one of my buddies, uh, they raised about $5 million and they had, uh, um, let's just say, it was not a great story. They sold for $6 million. And I think he just found, figured out what liquidation preference is on the sale. And he's like, yeah, they had a liquidation preference of $5.5 million. Uh, I spent like seven years building this business and I got left with like a hundred K.
3: I mean, yeah, like the the, it's kind of eerie that our you know, our first examples are the same. I, I, I don't know, you know, they're not related. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I mean, there are sometimes, you know, there's examples where there's management carve outs as well, where like, you know, you can kind of carve out some for management and, you know, sort of deal with the fact that, you know, management may move over to the new company. But I mean, it's really, that's what that liquidation preference is for. It's to really protect the investor's capital that's part of the deal. Right. Um, so it's like, it's just better that founders actually understand what that means. Right. I mean, for founders to go and, you know, there's generally, if they're going to a generally accepted pool of venture firms to, you know, do their deals and they're pushing back on the existence right. of a liquidation preference, because in theory, it's not fair. That's just, you know, that may be tough for them to you yeah. know, to, to have those shares as, you know, marketable, saleable shares to those VCs.
1: Right, yeah. And so that brings us to like almost like a crossroads now, the equity versus debt financing. Um, I've seen a lot more founders try to focus more on debt financing. Obviously we know that equity finances is always more expensive than debt financing, but uh, at, with later stage companies should, do you think founders should start exploring more options for debt financing just as a vehicle to kind of scale your business versus an equity raising?
3: I think founders should, Just start looking at debt from when they start the company and Mm -hmm. understand it. And understand, you know, there's different forms of debt, there's many kinds. There's also credit card debt. And so I think that what you want to do is you want to start building up your credit history as a company as soon as you can. I mean, you're not going to get, you know, a big loan um, when you just incorporate a company. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, again, it depends, 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 all this, all this, you know, left hand, right hand shit. But my point is, is, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to be you're not going to have that kind of credit history immediately. But, you know, as soon as you can get a small line of credit or as soon as you can start getting some small facility, it's, it's important to start thinking about getting that, getting that going for the company and maybe even just drawing a token amount of the credit facility down or the line of credit down and paying it back. If you can, that kind of thing. I think it's good to start building up the credit history. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, the big difference obviously is that debt is not dilutive capital, right? For the most part. And, you know, venture debt does come with some, some minor dilution sometimes because, you know, some of the venture debt providers are going to take what's called warrants. And so they're basically going to have that contractual right to buy shares. Uh, And, you know, typically they'll be nominally priced, but the, you know, the, the concept stands like even with that small amount, it's not really dilutive financing. So what a lot of companies do is, you know, when they're, when they're going for that kind of first institutional round after the seed, they'll typically, you know, raise a little bit of venture debt alongside or just traditional debt from a, you know, in Canada via schedule one bank kind of thing, yeah. the equivalent, um, you know, that's, that's a, that's, it's not, it's a not uncommon way of sort of splitting that up. So if you, if you need 8 million, you know, if you, if you raise six with equity and, you know, you have a, a line of credit, um, you know, or a term loan or whatever the case may be, whatever uh, whatever's appropriate for your company, um, of 2 million, that's another way of doing a little, you know,
2: equity and debt mix. Right. For sure. Yeah. And sorry, sorry. Did I just cut you off?
1: No, no, no. Go ahead. Okay.
2: So what, one of the things that like, obviously you mentioned throughout is, is having worked with venture funds as well. Um, so you get kind of both sides of it, um, the venture funds as well as founders. And now I wanted to kind of, go into the other side just to get a holistic image and understand like the common mistakes from the venture side. So can you speak to that a little bit?
3: Um, I mean, I would, I would probably say that, you know, the, you know, a common mistake that is doesn't necessarily happen frequently is, you know, I think when, when investors push really hard on some of these, these rights that we were talking about before, right? Like a participation, right? Um, a liquidation multiple, I think that you know to to me philosophically, especially at earlier stages, it can kind of set the wrong uh alignment up. Um, right. I think that you know investors will typically ask for certain you know veto rights or protective provisions um, you know which you know in a sense are fair and understood in the in the venture capital space right um, but I think being too restrictive and um you know and you know being too uh too harsh on, you know, too controlling of the company early, I think can kind of set the wrong tone. And actually, you know, that, that whole thing about certain VCs being more founder friendly than others, you know, it's really VCs are going to need rights if they're, they're investing in a private company where, you know, generally information shared by private companies to their shareholders is, is okay, but pretty limited certainly not the same, you know, as public companies, then, you know, it's sort of reasonable if you think about it to have a set of rights associated with owning 20% of a business or 18 or 15% of a business, if you're the risk capital behind it. But, you know, that difference is, you know, do founders feel good about taking that, you know, taking those terms or not? Um, and obviously, certain founders, it's just going to be Um, You know, they may naturally not want to give up that kind of control or, you know, control over fundamental decisions. But, you know, I think that there's a balance to be had there. And I think, you know, like good deals get lost if, you know, terms are too restrictive sometimes. The other thing is just also from the founder side, you know, founders should understand that, you know, VCs are really just getting a snapshot of the company, right? They have a bunch of companies in their portfolio or, you know, the more mature ones do so it's like it's really on founders to, and it's on the vcs too to ask but you know it's you know if you're getting a board pack every two or three months um that you 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 may not be diving deep enough into you know understanding what the company is going through and you know those snapshots may not you know in isolation they may not actually be that helpful right so you know i think that one of the kind of I don't want to say mistakes, but you know, one of the areas which which you kind of see good stories going is when you know VCs and founders, you know, or the upper management have really good relationships. Not just about the founders. Like, give your chief operating officer the license to you know build that relationship with your with your investors. Um, you know, do things like that so that there's that open line, and you know, your investors can be most helpful when you actually need it the most. So that, you know, you're not kind of asking for help and, you know, when there's just these little three month snapshots of the company.
2: Right, right, right. For sure. So can you give us any examples without obviously naming names or anything like that? uh, We want to hear some of the interesting deals that you've been involved with at this capacity. Like, can you share kind of maybe one of the most interesting deals? So like, yeah, I mean, well, there's so many deals, but uh, I guess like
3: one, one interesting one was like when I was starting out and it was. Basically, came in as like a litigation matter. Um, this was just, you know, longstanding relationships between these companies, and and then it actually just turned into one company buying the next, and it's like worked out extremely well for both parties. Yeah. Um, so it was like sort of out of this litigation came this opportunity to like do an M and A deal. But I think what was kind of interesting to me was that, you know, I'm am I kind of think about that deal sometimes when. When I think about all these deals all the time when I'm doing other deals because you just want to, you know, kind of you you want to keep applying and thinking through these problems all the time. But, you know, when when I deal with uh, you know, I'm acting for companies and I deal with corporate venture arms and you kind of think about, you know, the value and some of the potential risks of taking on, you know, venture capital from a a corporate investor who, right. you know, you take on money from them and you know where they deploy capital into you and part of their value is also accelerating you know your commercialization you know potentially right right and you know but then a, as a result of you know taking on that capital and selling into their ecosystem you may actually create dependency on selling right. into their ecosystem and so it's like it's this interesting tension um you know and, and kind of you know there's 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 there's, there's, there's interesting kind of things that come out of that interesting action. So, you know, that was kind of one deal that was sort of interesting to me that I still hold on to and kind of think about.
2: Fair. What about, what about like a bad story? (laughs) There's, there's uh, not everything is rainbow and sunshine, right? Like we want
0: to know.
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, man, oh man, that's just like, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of those, but, uh, but, you know, I think, I think it, I mean, there's some, there's some times where I'll start working on companies and it's kind of just a little too late, you know, in terms of they've come to me or they've come to the firm, you know, and we're trying to kind of untangle a mess that is, that has occurred. And, you know, we haven't worked with them and we're starting to work with them. And, you know, for one reason or another, you know, things weren't set up properly or, you know, they, you know, it it could be, it could be kind of messy, um, but, um, I think that, you know, there are bad stories around, you know, founders not documenting their equity split early and then some founder just being a real asshole about it. Yeah. And and you kind of feel for it, you know, you live your clients like stresses on this stuff too, right? Um, what, you know, one of, one of, uh, just like one of the most phenomenal venture lawyers in our, in our Montreal office said that to me the other day. And that just like rang so true um, and like totally relate to that. And when um, you kind of feel for that, where you just see it and, you know, so much potential with a company. So, you know, s- such, such bright futures. And then, you know, that kind of not going through that process of documenting that equity and the way to kind of claw that yeah. equity back or whatever the case may be. It can just kill a company, for sure. Right? Because again, it just goes to you know how motivated is the founder to, you know, continue to build this business. Like when you think about some of these founders, you know, they could be working in corporate jobs. Uh, obviously, it's not like they want to, but they could be working corporate jobs, having stable, healthy incomes, and you know they could be building value in their stock. Their stock could be worth 10, 10 million, 20 million, hundred million, $200 million. And, you know, I think at that point, you know, when they're, when their equity is worth, you know, eight figures and above, they're probably, you know, going to start making an okay paycheck. Right. But you know, from that period to get the company there and bring other people along, if they don't have the right equity stake, then what's their motivation, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I want to go back to one of the things that you mentioned there, like you you're living the stresses and the, the good times and the bad times of the founders is, uh, that you're working with. So when you run into those like instances where they're having these unfortunate events that you can't control, cause it's, it's kind of just out of your hands. Like how do you cope with that? Like, because obviously you're there to be their support as well, but at the same time, it's like, you're just doing your job, but it's taking a toll on you as well. So like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I say that on the one hand, but, but
3: realistically you have to be that voice of reason and you have to be objective and you have to help your, you know, you live the stresses and you, you kind of feel them with your, with your founders. Um, But at the same time, you know, you're, you're not those founders. And so you just remember that and you give that objective advice and you help them through the scenarios. Um, It's one thing, you know, you just can't, you can never let that color, you know your judgment that you apply to it you just you just hear it and you feel it but you know you you take your step back and you put your feet on the ground or whatever you need to do and then you know you you advise them through whatever tough scenario they're going through very -hmm. practical advice
1: (laughs) yeah so uh, yeah uh
3: tech conferences now andre this isn't even real yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm just kidding uh, no, it's, it's, it's important. It's listen, it's important to hustle with your clients. Right. But you, you know, you have to, you have to help them see through these, these issues and you have to help them see around these corners. Right. For sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so tech conferences, Andre, you, you, you've mentioned a lot of this and, uh, we actually have, um, a quote from you saying like the absence from a tech conference signals like your absence from a tech conference signals a successful conference because, that means you are busy behind the scenes making deals. Right? Uh, so can you kind of walk us through why like these tech conferences, obviously this year is a bit different with COVID and stuff going on, but uh, say for example, Collision Conference, like walk us through why these events are so important in your mind. Um, and even for like your clients.
3: I mean, I think they're really good touch points, you know, for people to stay in touch and, you know, connect with new people. Um, like, I think that, you know, I, I, I personally do not go to a lot of these conferences, um, but doesn't mean that I don't want to, or that I'm like, you know, I don't have FOMO as I'm kind of like everybody's at these conferences and I'm, you know, working away or whatever the case may be, but, you know, I definitely, I try to make it out to conferences. You know, I've been to Web Summit a bunch of times. I've been, you know, I've been, I've been to, I've been to a bunch of conferences and they're just awesome and it's just great to connect with people in, you know, these informal settings and, you know, go to dinners and take people out for coffees or go out for coffees with people or have, have some drinks and connect with people. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's nice. It's, it's a really nice atmosphere to do it. I think like, you know, for founders to go to a conference and say, I'm going to go to this conference. And by the end of this conference, I'm going to close a deal. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not yeah. that realistic. Right. Yeah, But, but there's always work to be done around that. And I think like, I think the idea is, you know, just as founders are trying to sell into large enterprises, it's like you got to run a process Mm -hmm. when you're when you're looking to raise a round or when you're looking to, you know, make a sale or whatever the case may be, you got to run a process. And, you know, building conferences into your process is it can be really effective. For some companies, it could be a total waste of time.
1: Right. Yeah, it all depends on your company and your scenario, your industry. So a lot of multiple factors playing in terms of what you guys want to achieve and how fast you want to achieve it, I assume. Totally. Okay, cool. Um, So the tech boom also brings us to like companies now like opting out of their IPO because they were premature. Let's give you great examples. Uh, WeWork, Smile (laughs) Direct. Um, So uh, you also explained in a 2017 article that there's a rising uh, trend of these companies trying to stay private longer. um, Yeah. so like what kind of factors go into that like uh from public to private and let's just use WeWork as a the perfect example because i mean, they are,
3: they I mean are wow like yeah. wow right <laughs> like wow but i think that like you know <laughs> there were a lot of things going on i mean if you read that s1 but i i think that you know from my from my perspective if you don't have i wouldn't say stable revenue but if you don't understand you know, your revenue, you know, trajectory, if you will, right. Like, you know, you go public and you miss a couple quarters of earnings calls and you're crushed. Right. And, right. you know, you, you, know, if you want to go public, then start thinking about building a public company when you're private, start thinking about, you know, what does it take even from an early stage to get audited statements and to start going through and professionalizing your business, you know, and, and you know, talk to your VCs about, you know, what, what are the metrics that you want to see quarterly or, you know, every month or whatever the case may be to help us, you know, start building in those disciplines into our company. You know, what kind of policies can we put in place? You know, just anything, you know, harassment policies and computer acceptable use policies. Start actually like building out your policies and start building out your, you know, your, your framework for growth so that you're ready to be subject to the kind of public market right. scrutiny that right. you would have. Right. Um, and I think like, you know, I don't, I don't see this all the time, but I think it would be great for, you know, for there to be dialogue at the executive level for, you know, coaching and, you know, training around things around like diversity and inclusion and thinking about how to build a diverse board and, you know, that that we definitely, I mean, we need more of that anyway, but, you know, when you're talking about, you know, going public, you really do need to have a pretty buttoned down process for all these things.
1: Yeah. And I totally agree that like the thing I can come from an accounting perspective is like uh, the company I worked with before, we're trying to set up maybe in a couple of years going public. Um, so what, what kind of things coming from audit, I had some exposure to obviously public companies. So Uh, you need to start like pushing out quarterly financials. You need to have your internal controls ready to go. Uh, and then they hired a a real like top notch HR person to come in and build all these policies in place. Um, and that kind of, again, to your point, the process and structuring to maybe you're not going IPO, you're not going to IPO within a year, but at least it creates a habit of, you know, we're ready. We can get audited. We know what we're kind of going to get ourselves into. Um, and there's no, like, fear in terms of IPOs. Um, and, and I think
3: part of it is, you know, think about whether what you said just now is related to, you know, product development
0: and yeah. dealing with right.
3: customers. Probably not, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe that is seen as a distraction. If, you, if you're, if you you know, if the company and its backers sort of see putting those processes in place as a distraction, then you probably shouldn't be going public.
1: Yeah. Exactly, and I think uh, founders and or teams in general should be aware of what life cycle their products in and uh, how commercialized their solution is. I mean, if you're still like early stage and you haven't really hit like a certain threshold of revenue and or uh, market share, I would say, I don't think IPOs are really too smart in most cases. I've seen like companies of like $5 million market caps doing uh, doing IPOs and it just doesn't make sense to me sometimes, right? Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's I guess it all depends on the company and then how you structure it, but also the life cycle of the product uh, makes a huge impact in terms of where your company's at. It
3: For sure, for sure. Yeah, and you know, SaaS businesses, solid mm-hmm. recurring revenue, nicely done contracts around renewals and renewal options and, you know, payment upfront and those kinds of things. I mean, you could set up a really nice SaaS business and, could be, you know, laying nice ground for going public, Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so many factors. Timing. Timing is huge as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: For sure. So you have a unique story in, in, in how, um, you kind of forge your path with tech, uh, especially with founders and through the startup program and things like that. So what kind of advice would you give to future lawyers who are interested in the tech field and looking to get um, involved in that, similar to your path. Yeah. Wow. You know, I definitely would
3: recommend it as a career. Um, I'd say, you know, I think you, you really need to know your industry. Um, Knowing your industry can be really helpful. Um, You know, if you want to be the world's best mining lawyer, then like get to know the mining industry. Um, and right. like the natural resources industry and, and, you know, resource extraction, whatever it is. Like, I think that's really important and start thinking about, you know, what areas of that industry you're passionate about, right? Like it, you know, and I think that our, it may seem like a niche. I see this as just a massive opportunity, uh, to service this growing industry or, you know, subsets of industries that are happening in Canada. Sure. Um, you know, and around the world, frankly, I mean, I work with companies and, you know, many different countries and, you know, it, it, the the tech world is just the most dynamic and exciting world in my view, right. In, right. in my personal view. And so, you know, if you're, a, you know, if you're, I wouldn't say a younger lawyer, but if you're starting at whatever stage and you're migrating into a legal career, then start thinking about what kind of industries you're passionate about and start aligning yourself, meeting folks that, you know, well, maybe they'll give you work one day if you're, you know, if you're connected to them and you start to learn what their problems are and you can help them through those problems.
2: For sure. Yeah. And, and just with tech and, and how dynamic it is, like you said, like it can intersect with so many different industries. So it's like, a lot of it is, is like brand new, right? Like there's only so much you can learn. And after a certain point, you just got to get your, get your foot in the water.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And like, and there's just so many people, you know. It's interesting. I mean, this is again just coming from the Toronto perspective as well. Um, is just you know, it's this growing ecosystem, and there's this constant refresh because Toronto's a growing city. So you got a growing ecosystem in a growing city. Um, it just makes for a pretty, pretty awesome dynamic that's uh, that's happening here. But I'll, again, very biased to this, you know, to what's <laughs> happening. Here.
2: So. That's totally fair. We wanted your opinion anyway, so um, it's okay to be a little biased with that. Yeah. So that's kind of like your work side and we like to kind of uh, like get another segment of kind of you, Andre Garber, like the background of you. Um, So we're going to hit you with the lightning round here. I don't know if you had a chance to look at the questions. Sometimes we like to surprise you. Yeah, go for it. I'm going to give you like 10, 20 seconds for each of these questions and just say the first thing that comes to mind. And if anything comes out, uh, we can always edit it out.
3: Thanks, guys. I Pre- appreciate you setting the tone there.
2: I'm going to hold you to that, okay? All right. <laughs> I felt I had to cover my bases. So um, let's start with something easy. What was your favorite book of all time? Man,
3: I'd probably say The Godfather. Um, okay. I mean, I obviously love the movie, but yeah. For sure. That, uh, I guess like probably, you know, there's that all, for me, like, you know, The Firm by John Grisham, but lightning round out of respect, I'm going to say with The Godfather.
2: All right. All right. We love it. No. Yeah. Normally I get the movie, but that's the first time I got the book. Um, so you had a long day at work. Um, obviously you're a busy guy. We haven't been able to catch you for the last couple of weeks. How do you come home and unwind <laughs> after a long day? i oh. might be doing this tonight since it's a long weekend. So.
3: Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, I would just say like having, you know, cooking a nice meal or having a nice meal and watching some basketball. I'd say it was probably that's sweet. that's my combo right there rap, yeah. rap, anyway, rap is the fiance. final today, yeah sweet yeah 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 back right there we go we're back the league's back i know i've been seeing that ad of uh you know siakam and fred van Vliet of you know holding that peanut butter and champ which or whatever they call <laughs> yeah. it yeah van fleet says back to back and uh <laughs> like you know i've never yelled at a commercial before out of excitement but i don't know just i saw it yesterday when the lakers were playing the Clippers, and right. You know, that was a great game. That was a yeah. really good game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I watched the first half, went to bed, checked the highlights okay. the <laughs> kind of, you know, at six thirty in the morning, check the highlights and then went about my day. So yeah. 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 So.
2: It's totally fair. Totally fair. Um, all right. So next one here, name one company that excites you the most right now. Wow. I mean,
3: man, there are like thousands of companies out there. Um, so I guess I'll just, I'll just champion like a local hero. Um, there's a company called Athenian, um, that I think is phenomenal. You know, they're to me an unsexy business, um, in, in that, in the kind of, you know, millennial description sense, because they're a SaaS company that sells to law firms, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, you know, and, and legal departments, but I mean, you know, I think there's, I've looked at, you know, legal tech for a while. I spent time, you know, being sort of a junior analyst or, you know, advisor, if you will, at a legal tech fund or venture fund, corporate venture fund. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's AI and there's, there's, you know, deep learning. There's all these advanced, you know, techniques of, you know, learning upon your data and making, making smarter decisions around your data and all that, which is great. But, you know, what's exciting about that company is that it's just fundamentally building an incredible and useful product with great product market fit. And so, you know, I think think that, you know, before you get into, you know, AI, and before you get into, you know, building out something, I, I don't know, more experimental, if you will, like they're just servicing a need in the market, which is keep your corporate records clean and, you know, manage your entities and have give clients and give lawyers access to, you know, corporate information, wherever you are and, you know, have workflows and tools around that, but, you know, build that out. So, you know, so to me, that's, I would just say like, that's probably a game changer to watch in in my space. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to just keep, I'm going to (laughs) keep my comments strictly confined to legal tech right now.
2: Hey, that was, that was a great ad. They should, uh, they should check you out for a sponsorship or something.
3: Or just, or just a discount on the product.
2: I'm sure <laughs> that too. Uh, Next question here in your life, uh, this can be related to the, your career or anything like that, uh, or it can be unrelated. What is the best piece of advice you've received thus far? Mm. Something that you refer to all the time.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a guy in our Vancouver office named Keith Spencer, who has just, just done a phenomenal job being helpful to, his ecosystem um you know and has spent decades working and counseling founders and you know done board work and you know help people through just so many you know so many scenarios and like the guy is just the most helpful guy and so you know he's like he hasn't given me the advice of saying help first but it's just so clear by his actions you know i'm just trying to read his advice through how you know how he is and he's just so helpful. And, you know, and that's, that's probably the most helpful advice I've seen, you know, in a long time, or, you know, useful advice for me, or just as a reminder. Um, And so, you know, just help the people around you. Like, and also, you know, when you see people putting in effort nonstop, then it kind of makes you want to help them more too.
2: Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. We love that. We love that. Especially on the hustle podcast. So uh last but not least uh, our favorite question for all of our guests do you, yeah. you like pineapple on pizza
3: Yeah I mean you know I don't want to give you the lawyer answer and say it depends but yeah you know, <laughs> like like yeah I mean absolutely you know paired with certain toppings probably not but generally absolutely
2: Fair fair all right all right that mm-hmm. that, that was a very detailed answer normally it's just yeah. a quick yes or no I think this is the first time we've got like you know some. Depth. Yeah, let me let
3: me talk to those people. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I I've been getting killed on this one. I'm not really a fan of it, but uh, it seems like nine of our previous guests
3: uh, don't really agree with me. I mean, like, I, I hear you. I think it's just <laughs> like, you know, you got your answer from me. Um, yeah. Tonight, I'm probably not going to order Domino's. Um, but you know, if I were, it, it could be an option. It could be an option.
2: Fair, fair. We love to see it. We love to see it. I'm a big fan of it. So, um, yeah, we keep winning with that Pine- question. Are
3: you just Are you just
2: solo pineapple? No, 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 no. no. no.
1: You so need what, what's your
2: combo? What's you your need combo? the You need the sweet and the salty. So you got to go Hawaiian. So you have the salty from the bacon and the sweet from the pineapple. You know, and it's just it meshes so well
3: that you know. And I guess for those with vegetarian restrictions, I guess there's probably some good alternative too. You know.
2: Uh, yeah, Sun-dried, no, I can't help with I that. Guess. Sun-dried <laughs> that, tomato or something. There we go. That's why, oh, yeah. that's why you guys are going to edit this podcast. <laughs> yeah. so get, get, get PETA all over you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. so. Thank you, Andre. Uh, really appreciate your time here.
1: Um, obviously all this information is going to be super valuable for all our founders, um, and our listeners, so they can use it anytime. And, uh, again, more than welcome to, come on again, maybe sometime later, and we'll talk about maybe non-legal things this time.
3: (laughs) Sounds good. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thank you, Andre.